Shalom. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the J. Berg Wilk Learning Series for 2017-2018. I am Shmuley Yanklowitz, President and Dean of Valley Beit Midrash. Here at VBM, we strive to bring you only the highest quality of Jewish learning. Bringing pluralistic and innovative Jewish programming to the Jewish community that craves substance and insight is our passion, but we cannot do it alone. To support our endeavors, please consider donating a tax-deductible contribution to our organization. By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program. Uh, thank you all for coming here uh, this evening to um, hear me talk about this new book, this uh, serious history of Jewish comedy, but it is a uh, fun read about the entire history of, of Jewish comedy, at least my wife tells me that it's a fun read, I'm not <laughs> sure, uh, but I think, I think it is, and one of the things that I wanted to do for you tonight, uh, as what we would say in Yiddish, perhaps a forspice uh, to the whole book, is to try and tell you the entire history of Jewish comedy this evening. I thought I would go through the entire thing. There's not that much, so it should be fine. Um, and I thought I would do it through jokes, okay? I thought I would do it, tell you the history of Jewish comedy through five jokes. But a lot of you are out here tonight. You seem like a lovely group of people, so I'm going to throw in one extra joke just for you guys. So it's going to be six jokes, okay? Six jokes. There are more in the book, but six jokes. Now, before I start these, these jokes, I should tell you as, you, as you heard from the rabbi, I am a teacher. I'm a professor at Columbia, um, and in, it is now, in some sense, the fashion in classrooms at Columbia and in other places as well, to offer something which is of the nature of a trigger warning. That's the phrase that's often used in colleges these days, to say that sometimes some of the material, uh, some of the comic material that you may hear tonight or you may hear about Jewish comedy in general may be slightly offensive or it may uh, rub, raise some hackles, rub some, rub, some, rub some shoulders, rub some people the wrong way, right? To which I say, good. That is, comedy, if you're doing it right, can sometimes be rude, and it can sometimes be messy, and it can sometimes be offensive even. But if it is done at its best, and, and I think that the jokes and the, the work that I talk about in the book is, it is telling truths. And it is those truths are sometimes rude, and messy, and offensive, and disturbing, and anxiety provoking. So a fun evening ahead, I think, for all of us. Um, but to start out, I'm going to tell my first joke, and this is a very non-offensive, very sweet, very nice joke. And my question to you while I'm telling you the joke is to think, is this a Jewish joke? Okay? Is this a Jewish joke? And if it is, why? Okay? Why is it a Jewish joke? And now, this is the point often when people who tell jokes say, stop me if you've heard this one before. Don't. Don't, don't stop me. Okay. So here is the joke, and it is a joke that begins with two Jews sitting on a park bench, two old Jewish men sitting on a park bench, and one of them says to the other, hey, I got a joke for you. What's green nailed to the wall and whistles? Okay? What's green nailed to the wall and whistles? And the second guy says, I don't know, I give up. What? First one says, a herring. And he says, uh, a, a herring? I, I don't know, what's this? What, a herring. And he says, a herring's not green. He says, look, how hard is it? You take a herring, you take a can of green paint, you take a brush, and you've got a green herring. He says, okay, well, but uh, a herring isn't nailed to the wall. 
And he says, well, again, this is not very difficult. You take a hammer, you take a nail, you take a herring, you take a wall, bang, 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 you're done. And so then the guy says, well, but a herring doesn't whistle. And he says, well, that part I threw in to confuse you. <laughs> so again, I ask you, is this a Jewish joke? And if so, why, right? Is it that it's the syntax of it? In some sense, is it the intonations? Is it the little usage of a little Yiddish inside? Is that what makes the joke Jewish? Is it the sensibility, that it's a kind of smart alecky kind of sensibility, say, yeah, yeah, to the world kind of? Is it the fact that it is sort of stand, it is meta jokey? It sort of is not quite actually a joke, right? It offers the promise of what is this and this, and then it kind of explodes itself at the end. It tears down the institution of a joke. It's an outsider, like Jews are. Or is it that, in some sense, the lack of closure speaks to some kind of historical sensibility of a Jewish tele I don't know, whatever. The point is that nobody is quite sure whether or not this is a Jewish joke, in the same way that often people are not quite sure exactly what makes Jewish humor Jewish. What precisely is it? And all sorts of explanations are advanced for what precisely is Jewish humor. And uh, I'm going to try and answer a little bit of that by telling you one story of Jewish humor in the five remaining jokes we have tonight. But before I do that, I want to dispel two illusions that, are, that were circulating about Jews and humor and Jewish humor. And the first of them, which is not a popular one now, but it was for many, many centuries, is that Jews are not funny. Okay, right, that even sounds like a joke now, but I, it, it, it seems to have been a fairly common perception of Jews. And I will give you an example told by a very smart woman, the British novelist George Eliot, who was a philo-Semite, right? Her novel, Daniel Deronda, is a very strongly philo-Semitic book, but she wrote, the literature of the Hebrew, this is George Eliot, the literature of the Hebrew gives an idea of a people who went about their business and their pleasure as gravely as beavers. That is George Eliot. Now, I don't know what she knew about beavers, but she didn't seem to know that about Jews uh, at any rate. But the, she had a reason, and being a philo-Semite that she was, it was an understandable reason. She was accepting a certain kind of understanding of the Jewish people, that they were essentially sad and grave and melancholy. Now, that was a general stereotype of Jews for most of Western European Christian history. And the reason was that Jews were so sad was because they were kind of metaphysically unhappy, okay? They had kind of missed out on the chance of an eternity, which was to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior, and realizing that they missed the boat, they were pretty sad about the whole thing, right? Now, the Jews had another explanation for being sad. They were like, maybe if you'd stop killing us, we would be a little happier. But the point is that this first illusion that Jews are not funny is an example of what we might call essentializing, right? That, that Jews were essentially this or that, right? Here, Jews are essentially sad and unhappy. And the second illusion that I want to talk about is that we do this frequently to Jewish humor all the time. That is, we often say, well, Jewish humor is, and then we put something after that sentence. Jewish humor is a response to persecution and anti-Semitism. Jewish humor, oh, it is the way that we juxtapose the metaphysical promises of the covenant with the profane, everyday quotidian life. Jewish humor is the kind of playfulness with literature and text that befits the people of the book, and so on and so forth. Now, even putting them this way, lining them up against each other, I think you can all see 
that all these is's are not the sole explanation. They can't be solely explanatory. There's a, it's not an is, it's a this and, and, and. And that's kind of what I do in the book, is I trace seven different ands, seven different strands of Jewish comedy, and I uh, try and give the history of each of them. I don't have time for that tonight, but I am going to tell one story of Jewish comedy uh, and I, through these jokes, and it's going to start with that repository of laugh rioting, the Bible. And the Bible is not frequently considered, I think it's fair to say, a funny text. Uh, in fact, the, another Brit, another late 19th, early 20th century British person here, in this case the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead, said, the total absence of humor from the Bible, this is again a quote, the total absence of humor from the Bible is one of the most singular things in all literature. Now, it would be, in fact, one of the most singular things in all literature if it were true, but it is not. And just to give you one example of it not being true, I'm going to tell you one story from the Bible, and I hope you will agree with me that two things about the story that I'm going to tell. The first is maybe that it is funny, and the second is that if it is funny, it doesn't feel Jewishly funny. It does not feel Jewishly funny. Uh, and we can, well, I'll talk in a minute about why that might be. But it is a story that appears in the book of Judges, in the book of Judges, that book of biblical Jewish action heroes, right? And it is a case where, in this case, one of those said heroes, the character Ehud, rises to defeat a foreign power that is tormenting the Jews, in this case, the power of Moab, uh, the kingdom of Moab, and its king Eglon. Now, the Bible, as many of you know, is usually fairly laconic. It really doesn't go into a lot of detail about things, about people. We don't really know a lot of times what people look like or what have you. But we do know something about Eglon. We know Eglon, whose name comes from the Hebrew word meaning calf, as in fatted calf. We know that Eglon is obese. We know that Eglon is fat, and he is very fat. And this is important for the plot, because this is how Ehud gets rid of Eglon. Ehud goes over to the palace in which Eglon resides, and he says to Eglon, I have a secret for you, and I would like to tell you the secret, but because it's a secret, you should dismiss all of your guards. Eglon, being apparently stupid as well as fat, says, well, that sounds like a good idea. I can't see anything wrong with that. So he dismisses them, and then he says, I would like to go to my favorite place to discuss this, the throne room, by which he means the bathroom. He then goes in, Ehud then stabs him to death. Now, of course, the Moabites have frisked Ehud, right? But they forgot because Ehud has one particular quality. He is left-handed, as the Bible points out, and apparently the Moabites have forgotten to frisk one of his two hands. They then, he then stabs him, and you recall what I said about Eglon being fat, right? He is so obese, says that laconic Bible, that the dagger goes all the way into his stomach, so much so that you can't see it anymore. It is hidden in the folds of his stomach. Um, and the viscera and smell that comes out um, is ignored by the guards because apparently this is what Eglon does all the time in the bathroom, thus allowing Ehud to make his escape. End of story. Hilarious, right? Now look, I think that first we can say that this does seem to be designed to be comic, not ha-ha funny, but mocking, right? This harsh, mocking laughter of someone who is perceived to be Israel's inferior. 
And in that sense, it also doesn't feel very Jewish to us in many ways. Right? But this is an example of comedy. And here I want to give one of the classic definitions of comedy by a man, not a Jew, uh, another Brit, a guy named Thomas Hobbes, who all of you know is the political philosopher who said that life is nasty, brutish, and short. Now, befitting Hobbes's general sunny and rosy perspective on life, he also had a theory of comedy that was equally so. His theory of comedy, which philosophers tend to call the superiority theory, says that it is, comedy is about what we would now call punching down. It's about the feeling, the good feeling you get when you make fun of people who are lesser than you. Okay? Not very nice, right? But I think that any of us who have looked at the nasty and brutish nature of human existence sometimes have known that people have made this kind of comedy happen. What this does, though, this kind of comedy in the Bible does depend, hello, okay, does depend, God is punishing me, it does depend on a certain kind of triumphalist comfort with your existence. You are the superior one. And this was the way that the Jews felt at the beginning of Jewish history through part of the Bible. God, they are the, God's chosen people. God is in his house, in their kingdom. The kingdom is expanding through David and Solomon and what have you. Everything is going well. But then, of course, that triumphalism is shattered in the Bible itself, during the, during the period of the composition of the Bible itself. And this leads to my second joke, which, and I don't want to you know, oversell this, is, in my opinion, the greatest joke in all of Jewish history. So, And it goes something like this. It is addressed by the Jews to the Gentiles, and it says, hey, Goyim. Babylonians, Romans, Assyrians, Egyptians, you guys think that just because you have destroyed God's house, our God's house, you have killed our leadership, you have scattered us among the nations, you have despoiled us, you guys think you're in charge? You guys are idiots. That's the joke. And as you can see, this begins to feel a little bit more Jewish because it is a joke that turns, in some sense, on the promises of Jewish tradition and theology and covenant, and turns nervously and anxiously upon itself. And that comic sensibility is expressed most fully, I think, in all of Jewish comedy and all of Jewish history, in a book that was written at the very beginning of the Jewish diaspora, which then served as the basis for all of Jewish comedy therefrom. There and that book is the Book of Esther. The Book of Esther, as, all of you, as many of you, if not all of you know, is the book that is read on the Jewish comedic and festive holiday of Purim, right? If there is a holiday that fulfills the ethos of they tried to kill us, we survived, now let's eat, right? It's Purim, right? Um, and in some sense, this is a time of mirth and rejoicing and merriment. But a reading of the Book of Esther itself is a little bit more complicated than that. As, so, as many of you know, I think, it is a book in which the salvation of the Jews in the holiday is predicated on divine intervention. Right? God has arranged all of the circumstances which take place in the book of Esther to ensure the salvation of the Jews, and that is how we learned it in Jewish schools, and that is how we send Jewish synagogues. But a plain reading of the book does not necessarily support that position if for no other reason than it is one of the very, very rare books in the Bible in which God's name is not mentioned at all. God is nowhere 
in the actual text of the book of Esther. What is in the book of Esther, and it is so powerful that the holiday on which we read the book takes its name, is the lottery, is chance, is simple coincidence. And if you look at all of the coincidences that line themselves up in the Bible, in the book of Esther, they seem so fantastically coincident as to beggar the imagination. If it weren't for the fact that, and you all know this, if it weren't for the fact that Ahasuerus has insomnia and precisely and reads the royal chronicles that precisely talk about Mordechai, if it weren't the fact that Mordechai's cousin was the one who happened to be picked and so on and so forth, the Jews would have been wiped out. Now, the rabbis, quite anxious about this, read God into every single moment they can in the work. But that is simply, or not simply, but that is a sign of the complicated currents that are at present here in this book, which is about the way in which Jews are able to survive in a diaspora as a minority surrounded by people who are trying to kill them. And it is not perhaps surprising that comedy, nervous comedy, and also powerful comedy of relief, of the relief of being saved, begins to be a feature of the Jewish existence in the diaspora from that first text. Now, to take, because we have to keep moving on, to take Jewish comedy into the diaspora in this persecutory moment, I want to cite two quotes by a noted Jewish scholar of medieval life, Melvin Brooks. <laughs> Mel Brooks first suggests that Jewish comedy has been used as a defense mechanism against hostile non-Jews, or as he puts it, if they're laughing, how can they bludgeon you to death? Right? And it was very much the case that a lot of different kinds of Jewish comedy developed that illustrated the certain kinds of Jewish wit that was needed to survive in the diaspora. I'll give you one example. This does not count as one of your jokes. This is a different kind of thing. Right? And this is of the kind of fable, a fable, which was a very popular uh, genre in medieval times. And the Jews particularly loved, they loved all sorts of fables, but they particularly loved fox fables because the fox was an animal in the forest that did not have the strength of the lion or the bear, right, but survived by its wits. And so in this story, in this fable, a lion is very hungry, the king of the forest, right? No Jew there, right, in Europe, in medieval Europe, the king of the forest. And he is hungry. And so he first sees a wolf, and he says, oh, wolf, how does my breath smell? And the wolf says, well, you know, lion, it's a very powerful lion. It smells beautiful. It's fantastic. It's ambrosial. And the, the lion says, you're lying to me, and eats him up. Lion keeps going, sees a wolf, a bear. The bear, he says, how, how does my breath smell? Now, the bear's just seen what's happened to his friend, and he says, well, I got to tell you, you know, it doesn't smell so great. You know, you could use some toothbrushes, fluoride or something. He says, how, do you, how dare you insult me, the king of beasts? Eats him up. So then the lion goes to the fox, and the fox knows that he is screwed. Right, because there is just no way, no, there's no way out. Right, he's a Jew. Right, there's no good. So he basically, so the lion says, "Fox, fox, how does my breath smell?" And the fox says, "You know, it's funny. I can't smell anything. I have a cold." <laughs> and it's this kind of thing, which is both the wit of getting out of a seemingly impossible situation, and perhaps not coincidentally, 
a wit which relies on doubling down on one's own physical weakness that seems to be one characteristic of the, uh, of, of the Jewish defensive mechanism. This is not to say that Jews were not angry about the situation in which they were placed in. And that anger also came out in comedy. Although, mindful of the dangers of being too uh, angry in that comedy, it often happened in languages uh, that were Jewish languages, like Hebrew and Yiddish, that the non-Jews would not be able to understand. This is, as Mel Brooks puts it, this kind of aggression. He puts it very well when he says, that defining the difference between tragedy and comedy, he says, well, tragedy is when I cut my finger, and comedy is when you fall into an open sewer and die. And just the anger there is very, very powerful. So you have this sort of positive, you have this negative, you, know, you have this defensiveness, you have this offensiveness, but humor is in many ways the, almost the essential currency of Jewish existence, certainly one of them in this period in dealing with the Jews' fate in the world, right, in, this, in, the, in the world. Now, the point that I wanted to, again, bring out was that the Jews, this humor is often turned in upon the Jews themselves, right? It was in the Book of Esther, it was in that Fox fable, and it was increasingly as the Jews began to sense that there perhaps was some way out of these theological debates, right? That maybe theology wasn't everything in the world, and that was happening as the medieval period was coming to an end, the modern period was beginning, and in order to do this, in order to illustrate this, I want to tell you a joke that takes place at one of the most important sites of theological debate, the disputation, okay? How many of you have heard a joke that takes place at a Jewish-Christian disputation? Almost nobody, good, okay, maybe one, this guy here. So a disputation, right, this was where at this point we were talking about Catholics, the Catholic local head, the archbishop or what have you, would challenge the Jewish community of his area to a debate, to a theological debate, and of course, all the stakes favor the Catholics, and none of them favor the Jews, because if the Catholics lose in the theological debate, it's no big deal, right? Maybe they lose face, but it's not a, such a big deal. But if the Jews lose, um, their books can be burned, they may have to pay a very large fine, they might even be expelled, and there were these actual dis disputations that took place uh, in the medieval period uh, through, through Jewish medieval history, and many of them did not end very well for the Jews. Some of them ended up in the burning of the Talmud and other kinds of things. Uh, but in the one that I'm about to tell, this fictional one, um, the archbishop of this town, who is a fearsome theologian, challenges the Jews of his community to a debate, and no, none of the Jewish leadership wants to be on the hook for losing to this, to this guy. But they don't want to forfeit, right? So finally, this little prostyid, this little Jewish guy, Yankel, decides that he will face the archbishop in debate, right? But the problem is that the that Yankel, not being a learned man, does not speak Latin, you know, and the Archbishop certainly doesn't speak Yiddish. So they uh, decide that they will take, they will conduct the debate in pantomime, in dumb show. Okay, so they 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 stand in the center of the town square, everybody's surrounding them, and the Archbishop is he begins and he holds up. Three fingers, okay. Yankel, without missing a beat, holds up one finger. The archbishop starts sweating a little bit. Then the archbishop goes, points his finger up. Again, it does not even five seconds, and Yankel goes, 
and the archbishop starts to shudder. Then the archbishop digs into his robes, cassock, his mitre, I don't know, whatever, one of these things, and pulls out a loaf of bread. And again, without missing a beat, Yonkel pulls out, uh, uh, excuse me, an apple. And Yonkel, without missing a beat, so he pulls out an apple, Yonkel pulls out a loaf of bread, and the archbishop says, that's it. That's it, the Jew wins. I declare uh, this over. And he stalks back to his corner. His fellow churchmen surround him, and they say, what, what happened? What happened, the Archbishop? How, how, how did you, he says, this Jew, these Jews are the cleverest, the cleverest and subtlest debaters. I began with the three fingers indicating one of the great doctrines of our religion, the Holy Trinity that represents three in one. And he reminded me of that great the uh, philosopher Aristotle who says that what is most perfect in essence is finer and that they believe in one God and therefore the Jewish God is finer than the Christian God. And I said, but God sent his only son from heaven in order to save us. The doctrine of the incarnation so essential to our faith. And this Jew returned and he said, but look at the earth around us. Look at the earth around us and see, does this earth seem saved? We believe that the Messiah will come later at the end of history, but history is still going on. And I, I said, but, but what about original sin? And I held up the apple to indicate the original sin that stains us all, that only, that only our faith and baptism can, can, cure, can, can cure us of. And he said, this is, your belief seems to be indicated that it's based on hatred. But look at God's love for us in the bread that is the wheat that grows from among the earth ever fructifying, ever loving. I believed that you were the religion that said that God is about love, and yet we seem to represent this, and I had nothing further to say to that. Meanwhile, on the other side of the town square, the Jews surrounded Yonkel. They said, Yonkel, Yonkel, you know, what, what happened? What's going on? He said, you know, it, it, it's funny. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, he said we should have three debates. <laughs> and I said, you know, I think one is probably enough. And he said, why don't we do it over there? And I said, well, we're already here. And then we had lunch. <laughs> so, you know, I, th there are two points that I want to make about this joke, which I think is really a lovely joke. And, and the, the, the first is that I think it is the best thing that I have ever seen that indicates the psychology of anti-Semitism, of the anti-Semitic mind, right? Because it builds up these structures in the head of the archbishop, of the anti-Semite, right? This is not what is going on, right? And yet everything, these castles in the air, these conspiratorial castles in the air, they're all in the archbishop's mind. That's point one. But this is not a joke that is just about Jewish superiority over the non-Jew. Right, because again, like in the Book of Esther, right, the Jew is the Jews triumph through luck. Yonkel doesn't come off that well either. Right, nobody knows what's going on. Everybody's wandering around in the dark, and so the joke, like so much of the greatest Jewish humor, turns and turns around and turns around again. And as the Jews begin to face the possibilities and the and the concerns of modernity. That same process is taking place. On the one hand, modernity seems like a wonderful opportunity for the Jews. Seems incredible, right? If modernity is premised on the idea that people can be citizens of various faiths, they can be citizens of the Christian faith or of the Mosaic faith or of whatever, right? Then, 
there's no, none of this theological inferiority or superiority, right? So that, that seems very promising. On the other hand, what does that say to the traditions of Jewish identity, of community, of belief? What does it do? Does it not them? And does it mean that the Jews have to look inward and critique themselves? Something the Jews have never had a problem with, but something that they will continue to do. And these questions become alive as Jews in the 18th century and the 19th century continue and continue to explore all sorts of other solutions or possibilities for resolving their place in the diasporic world, whether they be Zionism or left-wing activity or, or, or emigration from Europe to the United States and other places like that. And we'll talk about some of those in a little bit. But right now, uh, I want to point out that what also comes under question are the strategies of comedy themselves of saying, oh, you know what, I'm going to turn all this into comedy. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for the Messiah. I'm going to wait, and I'm going to wait for a kind of salvation. Or to put it more pungently, the fourth joke that I would like to tell you tonight, and this is a joke about one of those possibilities, that engagement in left-wing activity. This takes place in Russia in the 19th century. And as many of you know, Jews were very involved, as many other people were, but Jews were very involved in this idea of trying to... Uh, overthrow the, the czar, right, uh, and, and to bring about uh, a new kind of society in Russia. And in this case, the, the czar, it should be said, did not look too kindly upon these uh, efforts. And in the joke that I'm going to tell you, these two Jews uh, are captured for anti-crown activities and, you know, due process being what it was in czarist Russia, they are immediately taken uh, to the firing squad. Right? And they are standing in front of the wall, and they are, uh, the, the, the marksmen are lining up, and they are offered blindfolds. And the first one says, how dare you offer me a blindfold? I spit on your blindfold. If you are going to kill me in cold blood for simply expressing what I believe in the idea that all men should be free, then you will have to look me right in the eyes. And the second one says, shh, don't make trouble. <laughs> and I think this idea this, of, of attacking this certain kind of shashtil mentality, right? This is something that increasingly was also targeting the role that humor had played in doing this. But it did it, of course, through comedy, right? So humor was both saying, we can turn this persecution, this trauma into comedy, and that can help us endure. And then there were other people saying, don't do that. Right? That is precisely what is preventing us from rising up. My point is not to take a position on which of those sides is right and which of them is wrong. That's not my point here. My point is simply to say that comedy was embroiled and enrolled in both of those efforts. Because comedy, like water, can, take, can run into any channel that is made for it. And great comedy takes the best side of any issue. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz. I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at www.valleybaitmidrash.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. And to take that example, I want to talk about two different sides of the coin of humor in Jewish modernity, or what we might call continuity or change. So on one level... One of the great questions of comedy 
is about whether or not human nature, and in this case Jewish nature, is always the same. No matter what happens, it's basically Jews are Jews, whatever happens to them. Jewish nature is Jewish nature. Or is it that Jews can, are very changeable, that one generation may not know the other generation? In this sense, you have two different kinds of Jewish comedy that came to the fore in the late 19th and early 20th century. One of them were the satirists, who constantly were interested in the premise that Jews could change their behavior if only they were shown how. Through comedy, right, but they were shown how. The other was, for lack of a better phrase, a kind of folk comedy, folk humor, that relied on certain kinds of great Jewish characters, the shadchan, the marriage broker, the badchan, the wedding jester, right? The Shlemiel, right? The, the, the Shlomazel, some of them, right? The Shlemiel, the Shlomazel, Laverne and Shirley. Um, you have all of these different types, and these types, the fact that they are, in some sense, archetypes, is, a, is betting on the fact that things don't change. So, to illustrate how that plays out, as we come closer to our end, I want to use my final two jokes to talk about one great laboratory for that question of continuity versus change. And that, of course, is the United States of America, right? The story of, certainly of Ashkenazic Jewry in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, one of the great stories is the mass emigration of Eastern European Jewry to America. Millions of Jews, 2.2 million is one of the estimates between the late the 1880s and the 1920s. Um, and America is, even with troubling recent developments, I think it should be said, America is one of the most hospitable countries to the Jews in the history of the diaspora. I think that is inarguable. Um, and it is the case that Jews threw themselves onto America and into America with open arms. And the question is what that meant to Jewish identity. And so my final two jokes are about both sides of that, continuity or change. And I'll take change first with a joke that I have to warn you is a little nasty. So this joke takes place during the Great Depression, during the American Great Depression, 29. And in this joke, two Jewish hobos, two bindlestiffs, two guys are riding the roads. And they walk around and they pass by a church. And in front of the church, out in front of the church, there is a sign, and the sign says, convert to Christianity, get $5. How many people here have heard this joke? A couple of people. A couple more than the disputation joke, right? It's a lot. Okay. So the first one turns to the second one and says, well, how about it? If you think that I am going to sacrifice my birthright, that my parents and my grandparents suffered and died for for five dollars. Calm down, calm down. I'm not talking that we're actually going to convert to Christianity. I'm just going to go in there. I'm going to, I don't know, whatever they do. I'm going to wave my hand around. I'm going to, you know, say some words in some other language. I get splashed with some water, whatever it is that they do in there, and I will then get the five dollars. I'll come out. Someone says, Yeah. He says, Look, it'll be five minutes. It's going to be fine. I don't know. I don't feel comfortable about this. But if you want to do it, you go do it. He says, okay, I'll be five minutes. Second guy waits outside. Five minutes pass. Ten minutes pass. An hour passes. Two hours. Four hours. This, the second guy's losing his mind. Finally, after six hours, the first guy comes out. The second guy is, you know, beside himself. He says, what, what, what happened? Are you okay? Did you, what, what happened? Did you get the money? The guy goes, all you people think about is money. I warned you, right? It's a little nasty. It's a little bit nasty. Uh, you know. <laughs>
I know. I think it, this speaks to the this speaks to the immediacy and the promise of American saturation and the American possibility of, of, of accepting Jews so quickly and so powerfully that Jews can disappear and almost melt into the American landscape, so much so that in this joke that is from the 20s or the 30s, right, it becomes a sign of the archetypal American activity they, they can participate in, which is, of course, anti-Semitism. Right? So this is, again, round and round this joke goes. This is different, by the way, from a British version. You can call this joke 5A if you're keeping count. This is not the sixth joke. That there's a British version of this in which a father leaves his family behind. He goes over to, to Britain to make enough money to, um, to, you know, to, to, to bring them over, which was a fairly common phenomenon. Right? And you know, five years pass, 10 years pass, 15 years pass. Finally, the, 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 the telegram comes. I have enough money, come on over. I hear your steamship tickets. I'll be waiting for you on the docks. Uh, and they come over, right, and they see this man, right, who is dressed in, you know, Turnbull and Asser, and he's got an ascot, and he's, you know, pomaded and all of this. And, and he comes, and they, they, they see him, and they, they, they throw themselves into his arms. They say, Tatala, after all these years, it's you. And he's crying, and they say, Tatala, it's okay. You don't have to cry. It's... It's, it's all right. And he says, oh, my dear chaps, I'm not crying about that. I'm just sorry we lost India. <laughs> I'm sorry. Well, yeah, the problem with this is my terrible British accent. I spent three years in England doing graduate work, and I couldn't get, quite get one. But the, the point is that I, that joke would not work in five hours. To become someone who you can make a joke about a British, per, a British person, it takes 15 years, and even then you're not sure. <laughs> right. Now, I don't want to say that in America... There was, there was a sense that Americanism was easy or immediate or complete either, right? And in fact, in the 1950s, there were all sorts of jokes, particularly revolving around country clubs, the acceptance to restrict the country clubs, about the failure of these Joke, uh, of the failure of these possibilities at acculturation, right? People change their names, they do all these things, right? They go in, um, they, they try and do everything in order to get into these clubs, and they, they, they sail through until they get to the final interview, right? And then they say, well, you're almost here, right? Mrs. Uh, Noir, you know, what is, your, uh, what is your religion? And the person says, oh, well, we're going. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it always falls apart at the end, or this is the final, the sixth and final joke that I have for you, right? Which is... I think puts it as powerfully as any. Um, this was told at the beginning of the 20th century, or it's certainly said at the beginning of the 20th century, um, about an investment bank or a German, uh, an investment banker named Otto Kahn of German Jewish heritage, although it was widely believed that he had converted to Christianity. And that's the premise of this joke. And he is walking uh, along Fifth Avenue with a friend of his, a humorist named Marshall Shepard, who happened to uh, be a hunchback. And uh, Otto Kahn looks at the Fifth Avenue, the Grand Synagogue on Fifth Avenue, and he says, you know, Marshall, um, I used to be a Jew. And Marshall says, that is so funny. I used to be a hunchback. <laughs> Sometimes you get yeah, right. And I think that that question of the, the, what, whether or not Jewishness is possible to change, to efface, to remove. This is a question that is very, very live for us at the beginning of the 21st century when it comes to Jewish comedy. On the one hand, 
we have more Jewish comedy being produced in many different ways than ever. Whether it's American Jewish novels, whether it is shows like Broad City or Transparent or Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, whether it's movies with people like Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen, and some level, there's a tremendous amount all across the spectrum of Jewish comic activity. On the other hand, much of this activity is not necessarily connected to many of the things that in my book, and otherwise, that we would immediately designate as Jewish. Right? It has very little connection to Jewish history. There's very little connection, much of it, to Jewish text. It has very little connection to Jewish community. And, so the, and yet, on the third hand, because there's always, we're Jews, so there are many hands that are moving around. And yet, there seems to be, in the sensibility of these comedians, some kind of aspect of their identification as Jews, which they find essential to their identity, not just as individuals, but as comedians. And some of their work is the investigator trying to figure out what that is and why. Is that, what will that amount to? I'm not sure. But what I will say to you is this. Look back at that first, that I, that, that first instance that I told you about as the beginning of, modern, of, of Jewish comedy in, Jewish, in diasporic Jewish history, the Book of Esther. In that book, we have a character, Esther, whose Jewish identity essentially consists of saying, I am a Jew. That is basically what she does as her act of salvation of the Jewish people, is no more, but no less, of standing in front of other people and saying, I am Jewish. Right? My point is that there are real continuities. These are very old questions. And with that, I think I'll open it up to some questions from you all. Thank you all very much for your time and attention. We've got plenty of time for questions, uh, thoughts, or? Yes, sir. <clears throat> The basis for jab in the stories. That is a great. That is a great question. I actually have never heard. You know, every I'm, my next book is about the history of American comics, and um, comic books. And there are all of these arguments that say, well, all of these great superheroes are actually Jewish, right? Superman is actually Jewish. We're going. I have not yet heard an argument that you know the Star Wars milieu is deeply Jewish. But I'm going to have to look into that. So I'm going to have to check it out. Any any other. Any other, any other questions? No? Yes, hi. So I'll repeat the question for people in the back who didn't hear. The question is, does the book make a good gift? <laughs> the answer is yes. The answer is yes. It makes a great gift. Um, but, <laughs> thank you. but I will actually, no, I will actually tell you, the, uh, I will tell the, the real way, which is, a good, which is this question of, People have said in the past, people would say in the past, that a New York accent is a Jewish accent, or people would call it a Jewish accent, and, and what to make of that. And I will answer that with reference to, a, to a, a great work of Jewish comedy, a little confusing one, which is Seinfeld. So I, uh, Seinfeld is a show which had tremendous American popularity, right? This was not a niche interest in American television. It was one of the most popular shows in the country for many years. And you know, very frequently people ask the question, is this a Jewish show? And a second related question, did people think that this was a Jewish show? Right? 
And the question of whether or not it is a Jewish show, I think largely speaking, or in many ways, it was a Jewish show. It was, a Jew it was much more Jewish than the ostensible names of its characters would indicate, right? I mean, we, George Costanza, like who are we really kidding, right? But it, you know, I think that for most people in America, when they looked at these shenanigans of Jerry and George and Elaine, they saw New York. They didn't see Jewish. They saw New York. And they thought that this is what New York was like. And it was very interesting because prior to Seinfeld on television, there were very few, not none, but very few lead portrayals of Jews on television. And in fact, even with Seinfeld, they had to make Jerry Jewish because in his stand-up, he was already a well-known stand-up and he had referenced the fact that he was Jewish. But they, they were worried. Brandon Tartikoff, the Jewish head of NBC at the time, was quite worried that it would be a too Jewish a show. And so they de-Judaized some of these other characters. Um, but nonetheless, even though it was a New York show for much of the country and the world, I suppose, it was Jewish enough that it really broke open the floodgates. And starting in the 1990s, you have many, many more explicitly Jewish characters on television, dozens, dozens more. Um, and, and, and Seinfeld really broke away. So on the one level, this kind of New York accent sort of identification is a, was a very nebulous identification, I think, in the minds of many different people. But on the other hand, there was some kind of knowledge going on that this was, there was something there which enabled a certain kind of acceptance uh, that would then redound to a much greater representation of Jewish characters uh, you know, in people's homes uh, than in than previous years. Sarah, so you're in first. What about Molly Goldberg? Yeah. yeah. How would you say that obviously predated yeah. Seinfeld? Do you, do you think that paved the way for Seinfeld? Do you think so, the I think it's a great question. And that was why one of the reasons I was very careful to say there weren't, it wasn't that there were no characters before, is because I'm thinking of three particular characters. One of them was Molly Goldberg. Uh, one of them was Bridge, Bernie in Bridget Loves Bernie, if people remember that show. And the other was Jackie Mason in this very short-run show, Chicken Soup. Um, those two shows, Bridget Loves Bernie, I'm going to get back to the Goldbergs. Brid, uh, Bridget Loves Bernie and Chicken Soup were the two highest-rated shows ever to be canceled in network television history. And it was, it is almost certain, because of certain kinds of you know, audience concerns, it was too Jewish, but, you know, all sorts of things. But, yeah, I mean... Yeah, I think there was a lot of that. So I think that the Goldbergs was a very important show. I, you know, and I think that it has been under, very frequently, when people talk about um, the rapid decline of anti-Semitism in, in the late 1940s and early 1950s, the general, the general story of this is almost always credited to one phenomenon, which is the movie of Gentleman's Agreement, of the Laura Hobson novel, The Gentleman's Agreement that this was a message picture that, that, that came out. It came out from the one non-Jewish studio head, right, but came out. Uh, and I think that that is not a complete story. I think it had something to do with it, but I think the Goldbergs actually had a great deal to do with presenting um, a, an image of a, you didn't quite use the word sitcom in the late 40s, but basically a sitcom family who had sort of concerns in life, and, you know, just like other people. And I think that, that it was a much more regular presence in people's life. Molly Goldberg was a tremendously popular uh, uh, figure on television, first on radio and then on television. She became, I think she was this, in 1950 or something like that, the second or third place, it's in the book, but the second or third place uh, star of television of the time. So incredibly influential. 
What happened with the Goldbergs, of course, as many of you know, was not so nice. They got caught up in the McCarthy and Red Channels material. One of the actors was involved uh, in, you know, it had some communist affiliations in the 20s, which in the early 1950s was a big problem. The producers forced, in some sense, Molly Goldberg to let, her, to let him go. He later killed himself. So the show began to kind of end on a darker cloud. But um, the thing about the Goldbergs was it was incalculably influential for the time, I think, and it had that effect, and it, but it was not replicated, uh, not for decades. Um, and so it, it really became, in part due to the phenomenal entrepreneurship of this one woman, um, it was sui generis for quite some time, but, but an incredibly important milestone in American Jewish comedy and American Jews in popular culture. Uh, sir, in the back, and then you. I just wanted to amplify a point that you made so well with Seinfeld. Television really democratized the Jewish humor and brought it out of the closet. Jews ran the movie industry, but before World War II, it would be hard pressed to find a Jewish themed movie. But television was so many hours and hours of film, all this variety shows. Long before Seinfeld, you had Byron Cullen and Jack Carter and Jan Murray and Bill Burrell doing. Exactly the kind of Jewish humor you described, held down shtick uh, to make it acceptable for masses. And before that, too, Milton Girl never really told any jokes, but you and I and every Gentile in the world have been looking at a New York Jew. I think that's right, and I'll, I'll just I'll add two points to that very, very excellent uh, uh, pricey. Of, of, of this, this important period in the, the early 50s, the, late, the very late 40s, the early 50s. The first is that you, know, you needed people in the very early days of television who had a lot of experience of putting on live theater, essentially, that changed all the time. Uh, and, and they also needed people who were close to New York City, which was at that point the, the capital of television, right? Burbank had not really become a thing yet. Um, and so they looked very much to the Borscht Belt, which had this whole tradition of uh, putting on incredible live entertainment at a week's notice because you had people up in the mountains, they needed a new show every Saturday night that had professional quality, uh, and that was very important. And then you know, people knew other people and there was a network effect and all of that, and I think, so I think that, was, that, that put a lot of Jews on the air. The second thing I would say is, and, and, and this is one of the things that the, the, the writers for your show of shows frequently say, in the early days of television, television was not rolled out um, uh, homogeneously to the entire nation. Television was lumpy in, in its rollout, right? The big cities had television first. Uh, and so uh, there were, it was a much more proportionately, Jews being disproportionately urban, it was also a much more Jewish audience at the beginning. It was also, not that these are the same thing, it was also a much more educated audience. It was a, there were a lot of different things. And then, um, the, the, the uh, writers, excuse me, for your show of shows frequently would say that uh, as the years went on and there were more televisions, things were getting dumbed down and kind of the comedy that they were doing is sort of in the highlights of the early 50s, they weren't going to be able to do anymore and what have you. So these are just two, two additional points on, 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 onto this aspect. Sir, you had a point or a question. I comment on humor or comedy uh, as part of the evolutionary salvation of mankind and whether it's Jewish or not. Uh, humor is, I just want to make sure everyone heard, the humor is part of the evolutionary salvation of mankind. Well, I think that in, in, in some ways, this gets back to that Mel Brooks defensive line, right? If they're laughing, how can they bludgeon you to death? I think that there, there is a way in which um, humor not only is able to diffuse certain kinds of potentially hostile situations, but it also humor is, by its very nature, a communicative medium. 
In other words, if you, humor depends on both a producer of the humor and an appreciator and a listener of the humor, unless you're amusing yourself, which is a kind of sterile activity. But largely speaking, if you're not making that connection with your audience, you don't know what they like, what they find funny, what they might find interesting, what they, then it's not going to work. It's one of the reasons why I was drawn to studying comedy is because it really helps you understand the communication channels within a culture. Uh, if someone, if, if uh, you can say, you know, oh, my poem is a work of genius, um, even if nobody understands it, and maybe that's so and maybe it's not. But if you say, I have tried my joke out to everybody and nobody has laughed, but it's genius, you might have to rethink your joke a little bit. So I think that in that sense, it does help sort of bring a, a society together more cohesively. Sir, and then you remember that. Yeah. The concept of a Jewish comedian, is that something that was only in the United States or just in the old country? Was there a concept of that? Or That's a great question, yeah. Uh, the concept of a Jewish comedian and whether it... So I think it depends on... This is not going to be a great answer, but a great... Uh, it's going to be a little tautological, but it depends on what you mean. So in the East, in Eastern European context, there were a number of Jewish figures whose social purpose, for lack of a better sense, was to provide comedy of different kinds, different types, times. So one was this Baruchan that I briefly mentioned, the wedding jester, and his job was to kind of provide comedy, although his comedy seemed to consist largely of making the bride cry, and sort of, so I'm not sure how funny he was, but that was sort of a joke. There were also these kind of... Um, People called the Lates and the Marshalik were kind of like jester types uh, and would often be at sort of ceremonies or sort of happy occasions sort of more generally. Um, yeshiva students around the holiday of Purim would put on these kind of comic plays. So they weren't full-time comedians, but they would try and make money for themselves to try and get home for the Passover holiday by putting on funny skits and, 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 and shows and what have you. Um, but I wouldn't, I, and then starting in the 1890s and 1900s, you would have these kind of comic, you could have comic performers. Um, they could put on funny skits, they, would sing, they could sing funny songs, they could do funny cabarets, particularly in Western Europe in the, in the teens and the 20s. But this kind of thing that we think of as, I'm gonna stand up in front of a microphone, is this on, you know, you're all from Trenton, fantastic. That is not really an Eastern European or even a Western European thing. That really is very much a certain form that I think comes out of first the vaudeville tradition, sort of the, and, then, and then develops sort of in America. Uh, you were next, sir, and then here, and then here. Yeah. The question is, in the difference between the Borscht Belt and the current Jewish comedians, for the non-Jewish uh, audiences laughing with Jews or at the Jews, it's a great question, and I think I'll answer it with reference to Groucho Marx. So Marx, the Marx brothers, get their start in vaudeville. And vaudeville is full of the laughing at model that you're talking about, right? Vaudeville is full of ethnic comedy, where people would present... Uh, different kinds of ethnic stereotypes. And the joke was, boy, these ethnic groups are laughable, right? We were going to make fun of them. We're laughing at, not with. And the Marx Brothers themselves all begin as a certain kind of very basic, in their early days, very basic ethnic comedians, right? Uh, the standard Italian, the standard Irishman, the standard Jew. Groucho was supposed to be the Jew. We have a poster of him from the very early days saying he was the, the young Hebrew Julius Marx or something like that. Um, as he develops, you know, uh, and as they develop, 
the Jewish comedy of the Marx Brothers, and there is Jewish comedy, you'll have to trust me on this, you can read about it in the book, uh, right, becomes in some sense uh, a little bit more of a laughing wit. They become our heroes. They become the people who we, we, we love to sort of associate with. I think in the, the, the Sid Caesar, the, the 40s sort of stand-up comedians, these are people who we're not laughing at as stereotypes, but we are in some sense empathizing with. Jack Benny is another example of this. On the one hand, you know, here he is, this character who is, uh, uh, this is the first time this word is the right word because it was a word used about him on air by his wife the first time it appeared on American radio, a schnook. But he was also beloved. He was a beloved character. And he was, so there's this sort of combination there. So I think that that, that would gradually give way. That's not to say that that question of stereotyping doesn't continue all through American Jewish comedy history. The most recent iteration of this is, uh, I think, is probably Larry David, right, who constantly presents himself as the Jew of anti-Semitic fantasies. Um, and, you know, and, 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 you know, it's never quite clear because I, I think Larry David is a comic genius whose side we're kind of on, right? Are we like, yes, he should be hated. What are, but, oh, how do we feel about that? How does he feel about that? It goes around and around and around. So it's a, very, it's a very fun and tricky kind of thing. Someone else had their hand up behind it. Oh, yes, man. Well, some of the comedy actually started way in Eastern Europe from the Yiddish theater. Sure. Uh, so a lot of it, that's where it kind of went to, since the Jews were not allowed to participate in anything else, they created their own entertainment and their own thing that, you know, that's yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I think first I think the Yiddish theater is an incredibly important thing, right? It is not, as we were saying before, it's not a stand-up comic in front of a microphone, but it is a very important source of Jewish comedy from its first days in Romania in the 1860s. Um, you have these predecessors, these yeshiva bachers that put on these Purim plays. Um, you know, as you say, the the ban on on performing in the czarist regime of Yiddish theater, it's not quite as direct, that's a matter for the scholars, uh, in the 1880s, leads a number of these troops to go to America. One of the important things about the Yiddish theater in terms of Jewish comedy is also it is one of the first opportunities for women to perform as full-fledged members of a comedic performance in the Jewish world. Before this, it was very, 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 very rare if it ever happens. But in the, Yiddish, in the secular Yiddish theater troops starting in the 1880s, the 1890s, you have these women who are capable of both playing comic and serious uh, roles as well. They come to America, and as you point out, uh, the Yiddish theater is one of the places in which American Yiddish and Jewish culture flourishes on Second Avenue, what have you. But uh, I think if one were looking at comedy, that would be one facet of a larger picture, which would certainly involve the American Jewish press, the American Yiddish press as well, which was full of comic feuilletons and cartoons and all sorts of things. Um, it would include uh, the beginnings of sort of American Jewish comedy in English. Um, you know, you're beginning to have a whole sort of ferment of possibilities. And you know, you have these wonderful moments. This is one of the things where you see the besottedness of American Jewish comedians and cultural figures for America, where they will literally come and they will say, okay, we've produced this piece of work. Where, where do we submit it to the censor? Because everyone had to do this in Zara's Russia. You had to go to the censor. And they would say, no, there's no censor here. And you, know, you would have these moments where people would say, really? There's, there's no censor here? And of course, this is something that, as Americans, 
many of us, many of us just take for granted uh, that you know we really can just produce something, you know, without worrying about. It. But this was something that you know imbued every moment of their lives, and so being able to be unfettered comedically and otherwise was just a remarkable gift for them in America, and that was theat true theatrically as well as in other media as well. Thank you. That's a great setup. Yes, thank you. I think, uh, yeah, I think that, uh, uh, you know, well, I'm sorry? Was that my mother? Yes. No, but, uh, you know, we'll have to get the two of them in touch because they're both doing great. No, I, I think that, uh, you know, certainly Shalom Aleichem was, uh, uh, you know, a, a massively important figure in the history of Jewish comedy. And, you know, in, in some ways, because he was able to sort of create comedic culture which reflected all these changes in sort of Jewish life, uh, but in a, in a comic way, through Tevye and through other characters as well. Anybody who I have not yet heard from uh, today? No. So I will take you, uh, yes, all the way in the back, and then, and then Sergey. Where do you place Woody Allen? Where do I place Woody Allen? <laughs> as far from me as possible? No. Um, <laughs> it's like that blessing for the czar. Look, I will say two things. I mean, the first is that as a historian of Jewish comedy, rather than someone who has to, an ethicist of Jewish comedy, for example, one, one can't not reckon with Woody Allen's comedic presence, comedic legacy in the history of American Jewish comedy. It's just impossible, right? One of the things that uh, is, was the case, as I see out in my research, is there was a book published, I think it was in the early 70s, of dreams people had about Woody Allen. It's just a book of people's dreams about Woody Allen. So, you know, this guy was really sort of suffused deeply into the American, certainly into the American Jewish psyche. Uh, I think, and I talk about this in the book, that he, along with uh, Mike Nichols and Elaine May and, uh, and a couple of others, are really responsible for what I would call kind of the pseudo-wit or simulacrum of wit. So the idea that in, in so many of his pieces for The New Yorker, you actually, you know, you don't have to know that much in order to, about, let's say, the Impressionists or about Kierkegaard or about whatever, to appreciate what he's doing. You can just know just enough, and you can get in on the joke, and we can all kind of share on the joke. I think in terms of the ethics of this, I think we're having a, a very important conversation, and this is the second point, a very important conversation now about looking back at earlier um, works and seeing what rings dangerously to us, what rings problematically to us, what rings unfunnily to us. There's no question that senses of humor change. We were talking about vaudeville before. All of us who would go to an early 20th century vaudeville show now, which was advertised as good, clean Sunday family entertainment, right, would run screaming in horror from just the massive degree of this. I'm writing now um, um, you know, a book about American comics, and a lot of the stuff, again, that seems perfectly, that seemed perfectly normal in the 1950s, again, is, you know, I think that we, this is going on uh, and evolving now about sort of what we're looking back on comedy, and I'm very grateful, in fact, that I'm still, a, that I'm a professor, because I always have new students who are giving different perspectives on this material, uh, and it is very, not only important, I think, but very useful to teach this because you're constantly getting these new perspectives that constantly allow you to, 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 to think about these things in new ways. Uh, and, and, and so I think that Alan's, uh, you know, literary, his place in Jewish, the history of Jewish comedy is always as a historical matter going to be huge. 
His, his legacy as a, com a comedian that we pay attention to as the purveyor of comic truths and decency is someone that, that's going to be continually undergoing evaluation, reevaluation. Ma'am. But outside New York, um, you live in the States and you go to a Woody Allen um, movie, they don't laugh. They don't get it. It's a New York humor. Well, I will say when Annie Hall won, won the Oscar for Best Picture, it was at that point the lowest grossing uh, film to win Best Picture. I think Crash cleared that low bar, uh, like in 2004 or something like that. But for a long time it was, which is a way of agreeing with you, of saying that, that Alan's work in many ways was, um, was not a, uh, how do I put this, it was not necessarily widely spread. And it's interesting because uh, it looks like, we'll see, boo, 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 but it looks like after this, I may write a book about Mel Brooks, and Brooks, conversely, was a much, much more popular figure. He was a genuine box office, as all of you remember, a box office smash, a huge commercial artist, uh, all of these kinds of things. Uh, and in many ways, much more Jewish uh, in certain ways than uh, Woody Allen. Certainly, he represents a very different kind of Jewishness than Woody Allen does. Um, and so I agree with you that, that he was not necessarily, Allen, that is to say, he was not a big, but he did have, as I say, a, a tremendous influence on a certain image of what a Jew, what Jews were like and what a Jewish intellectual was like. Not always for the good, but, but there it was. Uh, I think we have time for one or two more questions. Any other questions? Anyone ever? Sir. Uh, one is Bachman's and the Bachman's was still around. Right. The boxing is the highest paid individual there. Uh, also, the first recorded poem probably is in Samuel, where he says to Saul, Ma, call that son car, which is what he's saying to Saul, what is the sound of, of the sheep that I hear when, when they were supposed to kill all the animals? Yeah, no, I mean, the great 19th century rabbi, Samson Raphael Hirsch, said, yeah, um, so basically first that the, uh, the idea that there are still Balchanim, which is absolutely true, there are still Balchanim uh, around, there are still sort of Purim spielers, uh, Purim players that are around today, and that is absolutely true if you, there are, um, you know, you can, you can sometimes see them on YouTube uh, and what have you if you're interested in looking uh, at some of the performances. The other is sort of an early material from the Bible, from Solomon, from Samuel. One of the earliest... Uh, lines often that was said uh, it's a champion kind of Jewish comedy in the Bible is um, the uh, how do I put this is uh, the 19th century Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch said that it was the example of a typical Jewish complaint in the book of Exodus which is when the Jews come out right they cross the Red Sea they go this right they and they, they encounter this, like for this you brought us out of Egypt right that is uh, the, the Jew right and it reminds me of that right, very famous joke, and with this line, right, that joke where people say to me, what is another of the jokes that sort of represents the essence of Jewishness, of, from maybe from a religious point of view, and it is the joke about Mrs. Schwartz and her, she's walking on the beach with her grandson. I think probably some of you know this joke. They're walking, right, and all of a sudden a big wave comes out and sweeps uh, you know, uh, the, the grandson out to sea, and Mrs. Schwartz gets down on her knees, and she says, oh, God, master of the universe, please, please save my grandson. Please give us a, a 
grace of the miracle, and a gigantic hand comes out of the heavens, and it lifts up the grandson, and it deposits him, soaking wet, but unharmed, on the beach. Uh, totally uh, you know, unharmed. He coughs a little bit, it's fine. And Mrs. Schwartz looks up at the heavens to which the hand is withdrawn, and she looks up and she opens her mouth and she says unto the Lord of hosts, you know he had a hat. <laughs> Thank you all very much. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture. At VBM, we strive to bring you only the best in Jewish educational programming. To do this, we host a wide variety of events throughout our learning season, including panels, classes, and lectures, like the one you just listened to. Please consider going to www.valleybetmidrash.org and donating to VBM to support meaningful Jewish education in the greater Phoenix Jewish community, indeed all around the country and the world. Thank you so much for listening.